we uh, have a little bit of a buzz going here. It's cool to go to worship and get a buzz out of worship, but uh, not so cool during the sermon. <laughs> All right, kids, you are dismissed to go to Children's Church. And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I almost feel like uh, maybe we should have Wayne and Dee come up here and teach this on discipleship since that's their stock and trade. And uh, it's wonderful to see the ministry that God is doing through them. So thankful that we can partner with them and have through the years, and it's a privilege to continue to do so. But as we come to this text, we find the Apostle Paul give a vision to the church, to church leaders on the importance of discipleship and how we should commit to that. You know, when I was a young child, I attended a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. I learned theology. It was a, a privilege to sit under expository teaching throughout my youth. And I was so thankful for the commitment to the Word of God and the desire to see the Word of God presented accurately. But something always seemed to come to pass. They would tell us we should witness. They would tell us we should have devotions. They would tell us all of the things that we should do, but they never taught us how to do these things to really flesh it out. One instance, I remember as a kid, I heard a sermon that really inspired me on evangelism. So I decided I'm going to take a group of the youth group into the park and we're going to pass out tracts. So we went to the park, and we're passing out tracts. All we knew to say was, here's something to read, you know, handed it to somebody. Well, it frightened me because a young man that I attended high school with comes back to me and says, you know, this is really interesting. It really makes sense. How do I have Christ come into my heart and into my life? And it scared the socks off of me because I had to actually sit there and explain it to him, which I hadn't done. It was so much easier to give tracts. But no one had taught me how to share my faith. So all I could do was sit down and read the track with him and kind of talk with him about what it said and answer any questions. But I didn't have a systematic way of bringing someone through the points of the gospel. And I floundered. When I got into college, I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. And within a couple of weeks they started talking about this thing called discipleship. Now, I'd heard about discipleship in my church, but I always thought of the 12 disciples, or I thought of all of us being disciples together following Christ. And while that's true, I hadn't thought about the individualized discipleship to where you mentor another believer in the faith. And although I had even attended a couple of classes in Bible college and had sat in on some wonderful teaching I had never been personally discipled by another individual. So I started to join a discipleship group. And during the course of our time together, I learned what it was to share my faith. Because you know what this guy did? He took me with him to share the faith. And I watched him. And as I watched him share the faith, after about four or five times, he says, okay, Rob, the next one's yours. You're going to share your faith. And I learned after about four or five months how to take someone from being a baby Christian to walking with God in a discipleship process 
because someone took the time to share that with me. And during the course of the rest of my college career, I took probably a dozen guys through the discipleship process. And I grew as a result of it, and they grew as a result of it. It was a wonderful experience. Really, that's what we see the Apostle Paul sharing with Timothy in this passage, the importance of discipleship. And what we want to see this morning is that all of us are called to disciple people. God wants us to have an influence, an impact on somebody else. You see, when you've trusted Christ as your Savior, that's a wonderful, wonderful step in the right direction. It's, it's essential that you have that personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But you don't rest on your laurels. You don't look at that and say, well, you know, now that I've got mine, I can just kind of cruise through. You know, I'll learn as much as I can. But, uh, boy, don't expect me to have an influence on someone else's life. That's, that's too much. I, I'm not sure that I'm equipped to do that. I'm not sure that I'm in a place to where I can do that. God wants us all to be in a place to where we can do that in the life of somebody else, to where we can mentor someone, because it's such an essential part of our walk with God. So let me encourage you this morning. If you're a person who has trusted Christ, and you haven't brought someone alongside you to mentor, I hope that after this sermon, you will take time to pray about who God would have you mentor in the faith. And if you're newer to the faith, or if you've never been mentored by someone else, maybe you should pray about God bringing someone into your life to mentor you. But all of this is important, so let me encourage you to become involved in the discipleship process. Now, as we come to the first verse of this chapter, Paul starts to share with Timothy the priority of discipleship. And I want you to notice that as he starts to share the priority of discipleship, he talks about the power to disciple and how that comes from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Look at what he says in this first verse. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, I love this verse because it talks about our resource to build in the lives of other people. There's not a person who can build in the life of another person because of who they are. All of us build in the lives of other people because of who God has made us, what God has done in our life, the strength that he gives to us. And when the NIV translates this to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, I think there are better translations. When we look at the English Standard Version, and I think they did a great job on catching the way this is literally translated, it says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought about the grace of God? The grace of God strengthens us. First of all, the grace of God is operative at salvation. We come into a personal relationship with God the Father by the grace of God. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. We don't earn our way into a relationship with God. In fact, that's what grace means, doesn't it? Grace very simply means God giving us something that we have not earned. So salvation is by grace. And we come into the transforming power of God and salvation because when we trust God, place our faith in Him, and grace becomes operative in our life, it transforms us. We're changed by the grace of God. 
But what we need to recognize is this. Grace isn't just operative at the beginning of our faith journey. Grace is operative in our lives throughout. It is the grace of God that continues to change us, to transform us, to make us useful for God. In fact, I found a couple of verses that speak to this. First of all, Romans chapter 5, and there are many, these are just a couple. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified, in other words, since I've been made right with God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. Now, look at the next statement into this grace in which we now stand. He's not referring to grace in the past tense, but he's talking about being able to stand in grace in the present tense. Grace is something that is operative in our lives. It's transformative. It changes us. And it gives us the ability to stand for God. Grace empowers us. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15... Paul was giving his personal testimony and he was talking about how he had once been a persecutor of the church. But God had changed him by His grace. And look at what it says. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. In other words, grace produced change. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. God's grace is transformative. And so, as we think about discipleship, we need not fear it. The transformative grace of God is operative in our lives, and it's operative in the lives of those that we would mentor in the faith. We are God's instrument to help them grow in the grace that God has them stand in. And God, when He calls us to disciple other people, He equips us to disciple other people. And that's the beauty of this passage. God works through us. And so that's what Timothy's being reminded of in this first verse. That God has given you the grace to do these things. But then we move on to the second verse. In the second verse, we see the process of discipleship because the Word of God shares with us, pass along God's words to others who will teach still others. I love this part of the passage. It shares with us the very heart of discipleship. Notice what the second verse begins with. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy had been Paul's disciple. He had taken him along on missionary journeys. He had sat under Paul's teaching. He watched Paul flesh out what it is to be a missionary, to be a leader, to be a pastor, to struggle, to succeed and fail. As he was with Paul, he had the opportunity to see all of these things. And he had sat under godly teaching because what Paul shared, the very words that he shared... He was entrusting to Timothy. He was allowing Timothy to see God's truth. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 1. For me, it's just a flip of the page. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, excuse me, look at verses 20 and 21. Paul, in speaking to Timothy, reminded him that he was entrusting 
the very word of God to Timothy that he might go and do what with it? Teach others. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be to you. So Paul was saying to Timothy, look, I've I've entrusted it. Guard it. Make sure that the Word of God is taught properly because it's been entrusted to you. In other words, he was carrying on the responsibility of sharing the Word of God. And then look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. What you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. In other words, he wasn't just to guard the teaching. He was also to make sure that he kept the teaching, that he lived it out, that he followed it as a pattern, that he would be able to spot false teaching and truth by the pattern of teaching that he had been given by the Apostle Paul, but also so he could live it out and flesh it out. And then verse 14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. So this idea of taking the truth of God, God's Word, transferring it to others is an essential idea in Scripture. And we as followers of Jesus Christ should get a hold of this teaching, this understanding, and put it into practice. That's the idea that we find in this text. We should be disciples and disciplers. We should be growing in our faith. Not stationary. Not just taking the faith inside and leaving it there and doing nothing with it, but sharing it with others. That's the idea that we find in this text. And that's what Paul wanted Timothy to understand. Timothy had the responsibility, look at this text, of entrusting it to others. Notice it says in verse 2, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses do what? Entrust. Take the Word of God and set it before others. Share it with them. Now, bear this in mind. Paul's in jail, going to be executed. He wants to see the church take off and grow. Wouldn't it have been a faster process for the Apostle Paul to say to Timothy, now look, What I want you to do is have vast evangelistic meetings. And I want you to get as many people gathered together as you can, and I want you to share the gospel with them, and and do that every day. Just go out and share in these huge evangelistic meetings. Get as many people crammed into a building as you can, and hit them with the gospel. And that's the way we'll build the church, right? Not what he says. Why? Because... Multiplication through discipleship is a more effective model. Look at this slide. Suppose you take two people, disciple them to disciple others. In two years, you have four. Wow. You know? In 10 years, 1,024. Now, that's, that's pretty good. In 13 years, 8,192. Look at 20 years. 1,048,576. And then look at 30, 32, 33. 33 is beyond the population of the earth. Somewhere, the process of discipleship has broken down in the church. But God's plan for discipleship is spelled out for us crystal clear right in this text. 
And so what God is saying to us, to Timothy, in this passage is this. The things you've heard me say, entrust to other people. But look at how the Word of God describes the people that we're to entrust it to. I've learned something in ministry. You can't move an immovable object. You know that hymn, I shall not be moved? Man, that's the favorite hymn of a lot of Christians. I'm content where I am. Leave me alone. Don't make me do more than I'm ready to do. Because here I stand. That's the idea. God wants us to be people who move with other movers. Because trying to get a person convinced that they need to move is like beating your head against the wall. You can encourage them. You can pray for them. But it's not necessarily going to be something unless there's something inside them that wants to grow. You can't make them grow. And that's something we should all realize. A lot of work, a lot of ministry goes toward trying to get people who don't want to move to move. You are spinning your wheels. You're not going to pull it off. It has to be the work of God in their life. So look at what God tells Timothy through the Apostle Paul in this text. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to, now here's the first requirement, to reliable men. Now the NIV translates this reliable. It's also translated faithful in some texts. And I like the meaning of both words. Reliable carries with it the idea of someone who's going to follow through. Have you ever tried to work with somebody who has no follow through? Oh, Very frustrating. Always an excuse. Always a reason why they didn't do it. You can't count on them. You ask them to do something. Oh, sure, you can count on me. Yeah, right. <laughs> not happening. Not reliable. So you waste a lot of time and energy pouring your life into somebody when there's no effect. They have to be reliable. The word also carries with it the idea of faithful. In other words, someone who is filled with faith. Someone who trusts God, who is interested in their spiritual growth. That's the idea. Man, you get a person who's interested in their spiritual growth and you seek to disciple them. And you know what happens? We saw some pictures of it this morning. People who are excited about their spiritual growth and do great things for God. That's the kind of person you want to pour your life into. The people who love God and seek to serve Him. Now that is challenging to me because you know what this is saying? Not only should I look for those kind of people, but I should be that kind of person. I need to be faithful and reliable. I need to come through. And I need to have an intense desire to live for God and to grow in my walk with Him. Now, I've been a pastor for longer than I care to say, but I have not arrived. If I don't have a passion for God, and a desire to grow in my relationship with him, I become stagnant. 
And when I become stagnant, I just stink the place up. I'm not using what God has given me for His glory and for His purpose. God wants reliable people. He wants us to be people who try to live for Him, who seek to live for Him. And in so doing, we will. Because He will bring someone into our life to help us. Number two, look at what else we find in that second verse. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will be able or will be qualified to teach others. The second part of the formula is someone who's able to teach, and this is the idea of being teachable themselves. Do you know that you're a lousy teacher if you're not teachable? If you aren't continuing to learn in your faith, you're going to be a rotten teacher. God wants us to have a passion about His truth. God wants us to be always learning. He wants us to be humble enough to be teachable, to hear what God says through His Word. Man, I go back through my sermons sometimes, and I'll prepare a passage of Scripture, and I'll go back just out of curiosity and say, what did I write on this in a previous outline? And I'll grab the old outline, and I'll think, man, that's shallow. I guess I've learned something between uh, when I last preached this and when I'm, I'm doing this, and that's the way it should be. God should be developing us. We should have a hunger to learn. We should have that desire to be teachable. But here's the other thing. If you try to teach a person who's not teachable, again, you're spinning your wheels. They may come in saying, I want to grow in my faith and in my walk with God, but listen, if they won't hear what you're saying, you're beating your head against a wall trying to get that person to grow in their faith. You want someone who is willing to hear what God's Word says and willing to give of themselves that they might disciple someone else. That's the idea of discipleship. I receive it, but I also transfer it to those around me. And God wants us to be discipling disciples. So that's why Timothy was called to do this, that the early church might grow. Now somewhere... In the process of churches throughout the world, this process is broken down. In the church that I grew up in, once again, great on theology, great on Christian rules, or so they thought, because they were somewhat legalistic, and confused, but no concept on discipleship whatsoever. It just wasn't done. We need to be people who disciple. And in order to illustrate the points that he's making about the importance of character and discipleship, let's move into the next part of the passage. When we come to verses 3 through 7, we find some pictures of how disciples should pursue real discipleship. And we find that first, there's an illustration of a soldier. And we see we need to persevere and prioritize. So let's look at what verse 3 says about the importance of having this characteristic. 
as a discipler and as a disciple. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul uses the illustration of a soldier, it's a common theme in a lot of his writings. Why? Well, first of all, all of his readers would have been familiar with soldiers. Remember, most of the thin-known world was occupied by the Roman army. And they were the picture of discipline and work, so much so that they conquered the then-known world. The Roman soldier was someone who knew how to follow orders and would carry those orders out and didn't worry about it being too hot, too cold, too rainy. Didn't look at the outside circumstances and say, well, you know, I really just can't do that today. There was an endurance, a willingness to suffer hardship in order to carry out the commands of the commanding officer. Now, some of you served in the military. What would happen if you went up to your drill sergeant and said, you know, it's a little chilly out today. I don't think I'll participate. I see Pete Dela Cruz over there laughing. <laughs> Career military man there. <laughs> Wouldn't happen. And if it did, you would pay and pay dearly. I would not want to be in your shoes. No, they teach you. As a matter of fact, a big grin would come across the drill sergeant's face when the elements were really bad because he's teaching you endurance. God wants us to be people who endure, people who stand strong for Jesus Christ. He wants us to learn the importance of perseverance. And what I've found in my own life is that's a time of real bonding between a discipler and a disciple when one of them goes through difficulty, training the other how to make it through. A good soldier does that. A good soldier stands strong. But then, I, I really like the next part of this in verse 3. Not only do they persevere, but they also learn to prioritize. Look at verse 4. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now, the NIV translates this, he gets involved in civilian affairs. Really, a better translation for this is he gets entangled in the civilian affairs. You know what it means to become entangled in it? It's to be ensnared. As a matter of fact, the Greek word means to be woven together. And here's the idea. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then be a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't get all tangled up in all of the stuff that goes on outside. Don't get drawn into the thought processes, the behaviors of this world to the extent that you exclude what God wants to do in your life. God wants us to be separate from those things, not entangled by them. When something's woven together, it takes a lot of effort to unweave it, right? So God doesn't want us to get entangled in those things in the first place, but to recognize that I have a priority in my life, and that priority is God. I'm going to see to it that I follow Him. Now look at the next picture. 
The second picture that we find is that of the athlete. Notice the fifth verse says, Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Athletes are people who are committed to their sport. If they're any good, if they're really competitive, they don't just show up at the track, right? They have worked, they have trained, they have denied themselves. They have come to the place to where they say, I'm willing to do these things in order to get victory. Now, the Scripture always brings to us the idea of discipline with the athlete, but I want you to look at what Paul shares with us about the athlete here. Again, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. You know what he's talking about as a picture here? Obedience. God wants us to be obedient to the Word of God. Suppose an athlete does all of that training. He's prepared. He's ready to go run his race, but he cheats. He's running a marathon and he hops a bus. And then jumps off just before the end and trots in refreshed and ready to go. Does he win the crown? No, he's cheated. He hasn't competed according to the rules. Suppose he's running a race and he fly kicks the guy next to him. Again, he's cheated, not competed according to the rules. So he's disqualified. Now, what is Paul talking about here? This imagery of an athlete is something that Paul uses in several passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others... I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Now, what does it mean to be disqualified from the prize? Here he is not talking about our eternal destiny. He's talking about reward. In other words, God looking at our life and saying, well done. We touched on this last Sunday. To the victor goes the crown. That was the idea. As we serve Jesus Christ, we do so to bring honor to Him. And we do so that we might have a crown that we might honor Him. And that's the idea that Paul is giving here for the disciple. Look, don't pursue the stuff that doesn't last. Pursue that which honors Jesus Christ. That's what truly lasts. That's what's truly important in your life. Compete according to the rules. Have obedience because if we live disobedient lives, that nullifies what we're doing in service is the idea of this text. You see, we all appear before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. 
In the Greek games, the Bema seat was a place where each athlete would be evaluated as to whether or not they had competed according to the rules. And the ones that had competed according to the rules would receive their trophy and rich blessing along with it. But the ones that fudged, the ones that cheated, the trophy was taken away. So as believers, we don't want to look at our life and at the end of it say, I accomplished absolutely nothing that lasts. We want to be those athletes who participate according to the rules that we might see the crown. Paul said this, and we saw a portion of this passage last week as we were looking at rewards. But remember the assessment. There's wood, hay, and straw, gold, silver, precious stones. And those are pictures of our works. And the text says, His work will be shown for what it is because the day, referring to the judgment seat of Christ, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward, that crown. But if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the fire or through the flames. What we need to understand is this. It should not be the goal of our life to just make it through the flames. To be saved. But at the end of my life, I look back and I say, I did not accomplish a thing. Who wants to stand before God and say that? Not an exciting prospect, is it? No, we should want to honor him. We should want to look back at our life and say, my life counted for God. And that's what we need to be as a discipler and as a disciple, people who want that in their lives. <clears throat> Third and final picture, the farmer. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Now think about a farmer for a moment. What's pictured here is hardworking. The idea is you work and then you get tired and then you work some more. You continue to serve God. It's important for all of us to recognize the importance of working for God, not to earn our salvation, but to please Him. Remember the soldier? <coughs> he served to please his commanding officer. As believers, we should serve to please God. God wants us to be people who are working hard in service to Him in order to honor Him. You know, farming in the first century, excruciatingly hard work. Think about this for a moment. Go out and you clear a field of all the stones, and if you've seen pictures of the Middle East, that's a job in and of itself. 
Then you cultivate the ground by hand, no equipment, not even a rototiller, man. You're out there with a shovel and a spade and a hoe, and you're turning the soil over. Then you plant the seeds. Then you carry water to water the seeds. And then you go through to keep the weeds out so that they don't spring up above what you've just planted. And then the harvest. All of that involves intense work. And what the Word of God is saying to us is this. We should be workmen for God as well. When the farmer has their farming season, they're totally committed to it. They have to be. If they just sort of let things go, have a good start but don't continue, no crops. It's not going to work. It's a commitment that they start and follow through and they work hard through the process. And God wants us to be people that serve Him in that way. Working to disciple others, working hard to carry on His work. That's what the hardworking farmer does. And look at the reward. The reward is He will be the first to receive His share in the crops. In other words, He receives the reward for that effort that he's put into it. And let me share this. As believers, we receive the same. We receive the immediate gratification of seeing the work of God done here. But once again, the idea of the harvest for us as believers is we keep farming until we get before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's where we receive the first of our crops that we've planted. God wants us to be people with that kind of perspective. And God wants us to understand that we do this together. Another favorite passage of mine out of 1 Corinthians is one where there had been a division within the church at Corinth because the work in God's field had divided people to be followers of Apollos and others to be followers of Paul. And here's a perspective. What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. Now here's the most important part of this section. But God made it grow. As you work in the field, you may have a very small part or a very big part of working in God's field but it all works together, and God is the one who makes it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each, now look at this, will be rewarded according to his own labor. You want to share in the crop? Work in the harvest. Work in the planting, work in the cultivating, work in all of it. But understand this, it is God who works through you to produce it. God is the one who empowers you to work hard. So once the harvest comes and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, do we earn the rewards, the crowns, so that we can kind of cock it on our head and walk around heaven saying, yeah, I got it. You didn't get as good a crown as I did? No. I want you to leave 
with this closing thought. Picture for us from heaven. And it says this. The 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they were created and have their being. What are we going to do with our crowns? Worship Jesus Christ with those crowns. It's not about us. It's about Him. So that's the way we should live now. It's not about us, it's about Him. Looking forward to the time where we can lay them before His feet in worship of Him. This morning we've seen the importance of discipleship, a perspective that we should all keep. That God wants us to be people who reproduce other believers. Through evangelism and discipleship, God builds His church. You know, a question I ask myself this week that I think we should all ask ourselves is this. If I had been a Christian in the early church, would it have survived? If I look at my own efforts, my own activity, and I see what I'm doing for God, would we still have a Christian faith? based on my efforts. So if every Christian did what I do, what would come of us? I think we can even ask ourselves that question for right here and right now. What if every person in the church served the way I serve? Would we have a church? That's a question you can only ask yourself. I can't answer it for you. But between you and God... I think it's a question that needs to be asked. Whose life am I influencing intentionally? And if everybody did what I'm doing, where would we be? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the challenge that it is to us. God, I thank you for the people in my life who have discipled me. The people who took the time and the effort to see someone who had potential, Lord, and invest their hearts and their lives in it. And Lord, I thank you for the discipleship that's taken place in our church. I thank you for those who have taken people under their wing to pour their lives into them. And God, I pray that it would be something that continues, that honors you, that grows our church family and our church body. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with a song that has the same heavenly imagery um, from this last text in Revelation. The chorus sings, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Please stand and sing.